AlienLegacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, media, music, comics, and more, check out CageClub.me. That's CageClub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. I'm Kevo. And this is AlienLegacy.html, and hopefully this is the least this is the least good movie we ever do. I just don't see that happening, brother. I just don't. But this really set the bar. It did. It definitely set the bar. I don't know what direction to indicate the bar is, though. Prepositionally speaking, is it up? Is it down? It what where is the bar? Dabari? No. Wrong show. This drove me to Dabari. <laughs> Alien vs. Predator Requiem is a goddamn disaster of a film. I wonder if we would have liked it more under the original title of Alien vs. Predator Survival of the Fittest. At least that might have, like, you know, put a little bit better perspective on the actual plot. But what is the Requiem here? I was in no way prepared for the events of this film in, like, a very literal sense. Not like, I wasn't prepared! Like, I didn't feel this film had any sort of, oh, this shit is coming. Any sort of cohesion, any sort of plot whatsoever. It just kind of felt like every scene guided me to the next scene where someone different was going to die. And while we have expressed similar feelings about previous films, it was the first time that I think it really broke us and didn't make us care about the characters before they started picking them off. It didn't even feel like they made much of an attempt. There was nothing here that bound me to this film. I recognize that it's an alien film, so I watched it, but this is definitely a movie I wouldn't return to. To compare it to some other movies we haven't cared for so much on this show, I certainly place this below Incredible Hulk, either Guardians of the Galaxy film. I place this well below Dark Phoenix and X-Men The Last Stand. This is a fucking train wreck. It is. It really is. What's interesting is, as I mentioned on the previous episode, the screenwriter for this film, Shane Salerno, was heavily involved in writing the script for the first Alien vs. Predator film. So, I mean, he was even a part of the previous incarnation, so you do kind of gotta wonder how it all went horribly wrong. This guy doesn't really have a lot of credits under his belt, though. He was involved in the writing of Armageddon in 1998, Shaft in 2000, and Savages in 2012, and he has some pretty major work up coming as he was chosen by director James Cameron to work on the four sequels to Avatar set to be released in 2020, 2021, 2023, and 2025. His other major notable work was spending 10 years writing, producing, financing, and directing the documentary Salinger in 2013, in addition to co-writing the companion book with David Shields, which became a bestseller. It's so crazy that the guy who directed the sequel to Alien would pick the guy who directed the sequel to Alien vs. Predator to be part of the sequel to Avatar. 
doesn't it? And another really bonkers name to be involved in this film. Do you know who composed the score for this film? James Horner. Brian Tyler. Close enough. This was after the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift in 2006, but before Fast and Furious in 2009, for those of you who listen to the Too Fast, Too Furious podcast. That's bizarre. I, how do you even get in? How do you go from being involved in what is truly one of the most successful franchises of all time, Fast and Furious, to, I guess at that point it wasn't yet what it is now, but it really is sort of like a sidestep. Here's something else that's fun. This was just before Brian Tyler's work on the film Rambo in 2008, which used themes by Jerry Goldsmith. And Brian Tyler's most recently released work is in Rambo Last Blood this year in 2009, of course, also using themes by Jerry Goldsmith. So many of these films are so tied into so many of these other films, and there's just so many legacy franchises at this point. I am starting to definitely feel like it's hard to escape franchises. Feels like a lot of the same people running in a lot of the same circles, which I don't think that we are bringing any kind of grand revelation about what Hollywood is, but it is baffling when you actually start to study these things. How many names you see come up that most people have never even heard of. Most women who shop in these stores have never even heard of Michael Kors, but they're still wearing his clothes. As for the figures who many argue are the most important on a film set, the directors, the brothers Strauss, as they collectively self-titled, are Greg and Colin Strauss. Inspired by Terminator 2 Judgment Day, brothers Colin and Greg moved to LA to break into the film business. After an unsuccessful attempt to find employment at Industrial Light and Magic, they worked on the X-Files film and founded Hydrox, which is their production company, which has a number of incredible notable credits under it. And what's important to note is they actually came out just before similar production company Oryx, but most people don't realize that. That because Oryx became more well-known. It's interesting that Terminator 2 Judgment Day was the thing that inspired them to break into the film industry because one of the first films that Hydrox worked on was Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines in 2003. It also worked on Looney Tunes Back in Action in 2004. R.I.P. Jerry Goldsmith. So we should just rename this the Jerry Goldsmith James Cameron podcast at this point. They also worked on The Day After Tomorrow in 2004, which has the composer from AVP, Constantine in 2005, which you, you know, don't love, but you love the character of Constantine. And Cage Club, Keanu, what, what? They've worked on five different Marvel movies outside of the X-Men franchise, including both of the original Fantastic Four movies in 2005 and 2007. I'm sorry. I think you mean the second and third Fantastic Four movies. You're right. I'm so, 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 so sorry. As for the MCU, the films they worked on were The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, Captain America, The First of Avenger and the Avengers in 2012. On the X-Men side of things, they worked on The Last Stand, Origins Wolverine, First Class, Days of Future Past, and Apocalypse. Kind of hard not to notice that they haven't worked on any Marvel movies since Phase 1, and since then they've worked on some subpar X-Men movies. It's true, but here's a fun note. They worked on Fast and Furious in 2009. I'm starting to think it was a mistake not having Joey on this podcast. A little bit. As for the television side of things, they did the effects for the 
television series Criminal Minds for 15 years and are currently doing the effects on the Netflix hit Stranger Things. Interesting. It is. Am I name dropping a lot of different franchises to stall for time? Only a little bit because these guys don't really have much to say, to be honest. They unsuccessfully pitched an idea for the first AVP film and despite being turned down for that, were still deemed worthy of coming back to directed sequel. You know, and that's not to say that these guys are why this is such a bad film because at the end of the day they could have had a really good pitch for this movie and just all the wrong things came together to fuck it. And as I mentioned on the last episode with the director Anderson, these guys did really have good intentions. They wanted to film as much as they could on camera without resorting to CG. They stated that other than the exterior spaceship shots, there are no pure CG shots in the entire film and that CG was only used for the alien tails and inner jaws as opposed to when they required puppeteers and wire removal in previous films. So they wanted to stay genuine to, you know, doing things with practical effects and whatnot. Honestly, I found a lot of the special effects in the previous movie disappointing, so I'm glad to hear that. That's a redeeming thing about this film. But on the other hand, these are the guys who directed the music videos for Vitamin C's The Itch and Nickelback's How You Remind Me, so, you know. I just love dropping these things to watch your face. Yeah. Much like the appearance by Lance Henriksen in AVP, the brothers had wanted to have another actor reprise their role for this film. They were looking to have Adam Baldwin return from Predator too, but they were unable to make that work, so there's just nothing. There probably wasn't enough right-wing nutsism on the set for him to show up. Cannot confirm. Alright, so, honestly, like, everybody dies. Like, there's just nothing to this movie. Just, it's a slow crawl about really unlikable people. There's a nerd down on his luck who was friends with the hot girl, and now there's, like, a space between them, but he thinks he can make it happen, and he's one of the central figures, and then there's a cop, and the cop dies, and kid dies, and, like, everyone fucking dies. This is a really disappointing film. And, I mean, the pizza boy in this movie is someone who it's hard for me to see him as anyone except for Chili in season three of the OC. Half sack on Sons. And he was also in Razor Voice, the Hillary Duff movie, but kind of like Dan Hedaya in Alien Resurrection. I can't see this guy as very much else. And the whole plot line about him being a pizza boy with a crush on the popular girl whose jerk boyfriend beats him up. It was a subplot that none of these movies needed. Who was that for, I have to ask, especially with the horrific death of the cheerleader popular girl character. Like, I think that might be one of the most gruesome random deaths of the entire franchise so far. And you know what? You're right. I actually think the nerdy guy survives. Yeah, it's the nerdy guy, his brother, the war veteran mom, and her daughter. It's Those are the only survivors. And it's basically like an entire town is wiped off the map. Is the town named Requiem? Is it like... Is it a Requiem for the town? Is it like Requiem Heroinsville or something? I don't even understand what we're supposed to get from this film. If the last film felt like it was appropriative, this film in some ways feels like it's exploitative of small towns in the middle of the country. And in a way that I don't necessarily feel is genuine to them. This really felt like what if Friday Night Lights had an alien invasion and everyone died? You know, and it was things like how vibrant 
ignorant the homeless population in Gunnison, Colorado was. I looked it up and they have a population of less than 6,000. That's not exactly a vibrant metropolis. And it feels as though the film was created explicitly to maybe hold the AVP moniker rights or something. Like, I even understand when horror movies go low budget for a cash grab or anything, but the tagline for the first film was no matter who wins, we lose. The tagline for this film should have been no matter who wins, the audience loses because this was not a predator film or an alien film. This was a pick em off film and the survivalism was the star here. I feel like this film had a much stronger alien presence than the previous one with the alien having more free reign as opposed to being very limited by the predators in the pyramid. But at the same time, these aren't really alien aliens. They're this weird xeno predator pred-alien hybrid as it's referred to in the wiki summary, pred-alien, which in and of itself, it's gross. The pred-alien, the way that it gestates and the fact that it impregnates pregnant women and like all of that stuff, the child death in this film was horrific. And what's interesting is there's even things that I think are meant to mirror aliens in this movie. There's things that are like, what if aliens had happened on Earth? But it doesn't work. Or if we'd gotten a better look at the siege of Hadley's Hope, perhaps. At the end of the day, I walked away from this movie none better for having seen it a second time. No more understanding of what went into it. I just found this film to be very hollow. Yeah, I feel like the thing that makes this horror more than sci-fi horror is the extremely large cast and the number of characters introduced exclusively as fodder. And the fact, frankly, that there is no real hope or positive goal. Everyone dies except for these four people who didn't trust the government. I'm not sure what the message is there. I will say, though, there's a line in the film, the sheriff says, this doesn't happen here, which is such a cliche, especially in things that take place in middle America. But it really made me think about this setting and the framing of this story and how the middle America Rocky Mountain range is in a lot of ways like a foreign planet, even on Earth, to a lot of people where they truly believe things like this don't happen there. And in that way, I respect the film's overall message being literally nowhere is safe. It's not necessarily a setting that most people would think to put a science fiction film, especially one like this. But the execution and overall story, it didn't come together in a way that I enjoyed. I very much agree with that assessment. I'll also say as well, what's weird about the climactic battle between the big bad predator, Wolf, who's the guy who gets the distress call in the beginning of the film in the Predator homeworld, which by the way, I just, I have to figure he's like some kind of Danny Glover character who is just one day away from retirement and gets called in to take care of these bugs. But the climactic battle between him and the Predalien, and the weird thing about it is that it's ultimately inconsequential who wins at that point, whether wolf defeats the pred alien the u.s government is coming in and nuking their own people regardless so we watch this really long battle of who's going to defeat the alien but no matter who wins that hand-to-hand combat the government's going to nuke all of you it's just a matter of whether or not these four people leave on the helicopter to escape but it was something that hit me while i was watching the movie i was like this is fun but both of you are going to die no matter what happens no matter who wins i think what we're saying is that all of the alien films from 1992 
through 2007 had a very heavy sense of nihilism to them. This almost unsuccessful attempt at being alive, and it's this pervasive idea that things will never get better, really through Prometheus, which is about the possibility of rebirth. And I even made a note that in light of all of that, it's bizarre that they didn't just outright kill the survivors. I'm surprised that the military team who greets the survivors didn't just kill them, because that's the sort of exactly as you're saying, nihilistic sci-fi horror that we were seeing coming out around this time. Plus, you know, the the tag that they put at the end that were starting to creep up more and more, even pre-Marvel tags of the businesswoman being named Ms. Yutani and, ooh, what could happen next? But see, this is around the time where those tags were made and none of them were delivered on, as opposed to now when it's like about 50% of them make it to another film. I have one regret that the X-Men franchise is getting that hard reboot. It's that the final tag of substance was the promise of Mr. Sinister finally appearing, and then I didn't get it. But, conversely, that means that they didn't ruin the character and he can be brought into film even sooner. How exciting! And speaking of opportunities to take another chance at things, I think that the Alien vs. Predator franchise does deserve another shot. It was not a bad franchise, it just had a good movie and a horrible movie. But at the end of the day, it really could be turned into something special. The comics have managed to survive for like 30 years based on how possibly special this franchise could be. And the fact is, at its surface, the whole concept of Predator versus Alien as a story is itself just a trope or a device that you can frame around any number of stories, and it's a matter of choosing the right one. I know that that's cliche to say that's true of any film, but especially when you're talking about something like this, it matters what narrative you use and what you focus this story through. And I think that this concept especially can be seen so, so, so many different ways. You could do an anthology series, you know? That's what's happening nowadays on Netflix. You could probably get at least a 12-episode series of short stories even of different worlds and different times that there were in Alien versus a Predator. It's just a fun concept to play with and I for one certainly hope that this isn't the last Alien versus Predator film that we see but it will not be the last time that we see either Alien or Predator on this podcast. And Kevo, until we return to talk about those films where can everybody find you online? You can find me on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also find me on the Facebook page for this lovely show, Husbands Talking More or Less, which can be found at Real Nico Kevo Action. That is also the new handle for our brand new couple's Instagram, Tumblr, but not Twitter, which can instead be found at Real Nico Kevo Ack, A-C-K. And you can find the super fun, super cool, super inclusive superhero stories that we produce over at KidRiotComics.com. Nico, where can the folks at home find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like Now and Again, where we talk about pop music. Music, X is for podcast, where we talk about the X-Men comic book franchise, or you can find me on Instagram over at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until then, guys, we will keep seeing you in big space. Space, space, space. <laughs>